0: Good morning. All right, guys, we're going to continue our series of the book of Acts, as the, how the church was born and came to be. If you have your Bibles, grab them. Acts chapter 8 is where we're going to be uh, camping out today. Acts chapter 8. We're going to start off reading that together. most important thing we do is read from this book because as we read it, we read the very words of God. Acts chapter 8, we're going to start in verse 4. We're going to go through verse 24. If you don't have your Bible, that's OK. The words will be up on the screen. Starting in verse 4, Luke writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he says this. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many of them And and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed, so there was much joy in the city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. Great. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, as we have been preparing to uh, bring on a, a third staff member, a children's minister, we have uh, been adding a wall in our office to uh, create another office space. And so Dan came and helped me put the the two-by-fours up, and we got kind of the wall built, and I started putting the drywall on, and then I started doing the mudding. And if you've ever done drywall mud, you know it can be one of the most frustrating things in the world because you put this mud over the cracks, and and you try to get it really smooth and perfect because you want your wall to look good, and you got this big putty knife, and you're spreading it out. But then if you get one little piece of like paper or dirt or hardened piece of, of mud in there, you do it and there's just a streak. And you're like, yeah. And so then you get all that trash off your knife and you go and smooth it out. And you're like, okay, that's about perfect. But there's one little spot. Let me get that. And then you touch it and you're like, ah, oh, I messed it up again. Now there's this. Other. And so you just find yourself doing it over and over again. And there's, you like, where is all of this? dried up or paper. Where's this trash coming from that's getting in this mud? And you keep doing it and doing it until finally you work it all out. And I think in many ways, we the church is kind of the same way, that when the gospel is advancing, when the kingdom of God is moving and people are coming to faith, when churches are growing, there is always some trash and some something in the way. There's roadblocks in the way. There are dangers. There are issues that arise which threaten to derail or slow down the work or the spread of the gospel altogether. In our text this morning, we see four such dangers, four dangers that even today in 2021 threaten the advancement of the gospel, four dangers that we must be aware of and must never fall prey to or allow them to go unchecked in our church. You know, the problem I have seen even just in my own lifetime is that we often, as Christians as a whole, have a hard time recognizing what the real problems are sometimes. I've watched the church at large overreact to issues that were kind of small, and I've watched the church underreact to issues that are much more of a problem. For example, when Harry Potter came out and the books, everybody loved the books or they wanted to watch the movies, there was a group of Christians freaked out. Kids, you cannot read that witchcraft book. You can't go watch those movies because you might become a witch or whatever. But there was this fear that if our kids liked Harry Potter and liked this movie or these books that they would become witches. They become evil, and so we, we wouldn't let them watch it. We wouldn't let them read it. We, we we let them watch *Lord of the Rings* and that wizard, but but not *Harry Potter*. We let them watch *Narnia* and that witch, but not *Harry Potter* for some reason. But now, some time has passed, and now no one cares. Now everyone sees it. It's just it's just a good movie. It's just a good story about good versus evil, and we all realize that we kind of overreacted to that. But then there are things that are much more dangerous, and we underreact to them. As we dive into this story this morning, I think it shows us some of the kinds of dangers that we need to be aware of, and that we can apply these same concepts that are found in Acts chapter eight to today. Real dangers, real issues that threaten the spread of the gospel, by either watering it down or by altering it or adding something to it maybe. So let's jump into our story, see four dangers that seek to hamper, threaten the spread of the gospel today. Before we go much further though, let's pray that God would bless our time together. Father, this morning we pray that you would bless the preaching of your word. We pray that you would convict us, that you would challenge us, that you would encourage us and build us up stronger today. Would you conform us into the image of Christ today that we might look more like you? Father, we pray that you would bless our church and that we would become a stronger and stronger and stronger church every week, Father, we thank you. We love you in Christ, and we pray. All people said. So our story picks up right after what we talked about last week—the stoning of Stephen. And so, because of this stoning, because Stephen was martyred and killed, everyone kind of got scared and they scattered. And so, all of the disciples and the followers of Jesus are, are scattered around which is exactly what God wanted because he wanted them to spread out and to spread the gospel and share the gospel, not just in Jerusalem, but get out of here, go. And so he spread them out. And as they're moving, they're proclaiming the gospel and traveling and sharing Jesus. Well, Philip, who is one of the deacons, is headed down to Samaria and he begins to share the gospel there. And he's sharing the gospel and he is uh, healing people and performing many signs and wonders. Now, Philip didn't know this, but there was a man who lived there in Samaria named Simon uh, the magician, who had for a while been amazing everyone. That word amazing is used over and over in that text. He's been amazing everyone with his tricks, with his magic. Now, what kind of it's important, I think, for us to think through, okay, what what does it mean when the Bible tells us that this guy's doing magic? What does that mean? First, I want you to understand that there are several examples in the Bible of people doing real, actual magic. I understand that magic is real. In the Old Testament, Moses throws down his staff and turns it into a snake. And then Pharaoh's like, yeah, that's not a big deal. Watch my guys. And they all do the same thing. Okay? And so uh, uh, in Acts chapter 13, we see Paul confront this other magician who Paul says is filled with the devil. All right, which implies that this guy has some sort of demonic power in him. So it is possible that our boy Simon here in this text is doing some sort of legitimate, dark, uh, satanic magic. That is certainly possible. However, it is more likely that while maybe he has some sort of interesting power, it is more likely that his magic, quote-unquote, is this mixture of kind of scientific knowledge, medical knowledge, uh, knowledge of astronomy, knowledge of mathematics, and he is probably using amulets and charms, and he is interpreting dreams and using horoscopes and using crystals. You know, there's this fascinating with crystals, crystals nowadays that I don't understand, but that's not new, right? And so probably using crystals, and there's this kind of sort of sleight of hand, subjective, interpretive dream kind of stuff. But whatever he did It's important to note in the text that the people were blown away. They were amazed by what this guy could do. They were blown away by it. So blown away that these people began to say of Simon, this man is the power of God that is called great. They thought Simon was from God. They thought he was some sort of prophet or redeemer or some kind of some kind of guy from God because he's doing these extraordinary, powerful things. Imagine how that made them listen to what Simon was saying, and how they were enthralled and captivated by him. And that leads us to our first danger. The first danger is this: the appearance of godliness without the substance. There can be an appearance of godliness without substance. See, Simon has come looking like he is from God. The people think that Simon is from God. He is doing magic as if he is from God, and the people believe him and believe what he's saying. This is a huge danger even still today, There are so many preachers and teachers and authors of books and podcasters and conference speakers and on and on who sound really good, who sound really godly, who sound like they are standing for God. But the reality is they are deceiving followers of Jesus who buy into what they say And they believe it and move further and further and further and further away from Jesus of the Bible. 52,000 people every week attend Lakewood Church. And who knows how many more watch online as they watch Joel Osteen deceive them about who Jesus is and what he has come to do. Joel Osteen uses the Bible. Joel holds up the Bible every week and talks about how it is important, how it's authoritative, how it matters. And yet, Joel uses the Bible to deceive people into believing that God wants him to have more money and a bigger house and a bigger car, and if you take the first step, God will bless you. It's heretical. Joel Osteen has the appearance of godliness. He uses the Bible, but he lacks the substance. He lacks the truth. It looks good. It sounds good. It's mixed in with some true things. You can't talk about the Bible not stumble upon truth, but it's wrong, and it's leading people to hell. A few years ago, Lifeway, which, was, which is a Christian bookstore, um, uh, it closed all of its physical locations around the country because it couldn't make money. And while that was sad because I loved going to Lifeway and shopping for books, uh, I'm kind of glad because... Too many people thought, well, if it's in Lifeway, it must be good, right? Like, Lifeway is a Southern Baptist thing, and, and so if it's in there, that must mean some smart people, some pastors, some theologians are, are like, got it, like, they have approved this somehow. So if I go in this store, I can know everything in here is good. That's just not true. You could find little books about little boys who would visit heaven and tell you about heaven you could, there was one devotional where this lady claims that she audibly hears from God and it's less a devotional about the scriptures and it's more about what God has spoken to her and she's relaying to you as if God is speaking to you through her divinely. And so many more unhelpful things. A few years ago, there was a book that blew up on the Christian scene that everyone was talking about. It was all the rage and everyone loved it. And everyone said that now after reading this book, they finally understood the Trinity. The Trinity is so confusing to them, but now they've read this book and it makes so much sense. Probably most of you, a lot of you in this room, read it called The Shack. And, and it, it was so heartbreaking because, as people said, now I understand the Trinity because its view of the Trinity was heretical. It's not true, it's bad. And yet, this book becomes a bestseller. And then sometimes, people begin to believe the lie of the cultural gospel. And by that I mean because you believe uh, believe in God, because you go to church, because you're a good person, you help other people, you work hard, you're good to your family. Because of all that, you hear people say that you're right with God, that everything's good, because you're a good person, that God helps those who help themselves. And it breaks my heart about how many people believe this nonsense. It breaks my heart how easily we are deceived by clever speakers and good and well-written books. It breaks my heart for how many people will discover too late that they were lost all along and that all of their belief and their supposed goodness wasn't enough. You see, a lot of these things have the appearance of godliness. But they're lies. They seem right, they look right. They may sound good, this people, these schools of thought, they they lack truth. They lack the substance. They have the appearance of godliness but lack substance. So we have to be a people who are who are careful that our ears are not tickled by things we want or wish to be true. We must be so diligent and studied and wise that we do not get fooled into believing someone or something is from God when in reality they are far, far away. To the people in Samaria, they were believing Simon. They were amazed by Simon. They thought Simon was from God until Philip showed up. Until Philip showed up. Philip shows up and like Simon, Philip can do amazing things too. Philip is healing lepers and he's, he's doing amazing signs and miracles. And the, and the text tells us that they were just as amazed at Philip that they were Simon. They're, now they're, they, were, they were amazed at Simon, but now they're amazed at Philip. But there was a difference. There was a difference between this dueling of magicians, Philip did not come like Simon trying to make a name for himself. Philip didn't come saying, hey, look at me, y'all, watch this. Be healed. Ain't I great? Watch this, be healed. He wasn't saying, look how awesome I am. Instead, Philip comes not trying to make a name for himself. He doesn't come with a puffed out chest saying, look at me. He comes saying, look at him. And look at what he can do. See, Philip could do these supernatural things, yes, but Philip came with a message a message about a crucified and resurrected Christ, a message of love and grace and hope, a message whose truth outshined whatever it is Simon was peddling. You see, we have to be a discerning people who look past the elegance of those who can speak well. We must look past the shiny, polished, public speaking or preaching or writing of others. We must look past how interesting that new book is or that new school of thought is. We must be the people who look past the person and see the substance of what is being said. We must not be deceived when they use the Bible or when they quote the Bible or talk and say some true things. We must see the whole thing. We are a people about substance. What is being said, what is being taught, what is the truth is what matters to us. We are a people of substance. So much so that if I stand up here and preach or teach something that is in error and contradicts the clear truths of Scripture, it is your job as the church to call me out. It is your job to bring your sword and do battle with me. It is your job to say, Brent, I think this was wrong, and here's why. Here's what the scriptures say. If we lose the substance, we lose the actual power to see anyone saved. It is the substance that matters. Because the truth, the gospel, is what changes people. It changes people's lives. It is, is what is important. So may we never mistake flashy or clever or cool or hip or relevant or amazing to be automatically true. Because if we lose the substance, we lose the actual power to save anyone. So the first danger is the appearance of godliness without the substance. And as our story continues, something unexpected happens. Simon the magician sees Philip and hears what Philip has to say and sees what Philip has done, and he believes, the text says. He believes Philip. Simon the magician is then baptized, joins the church, and begins to follow Philip where he's going and joins him on his mission. Simon is there as all these Samaritans are getting saved or following in baptism. That's something interesting happens. Though the Samaritans are coming to Christ and believing, they are not immediately filled with the Holy Spirit. And This is the only time this happens, where they're not immediately filled with the Holy Spirit upon conversion, like we all were. So Philip sends word to the apostles that the gospel has reached the Samaritans, and the apostles send Peter and John, the disciples, and they come down to see if the faith of the Samaritans is genuine. And when they see that it is, the apostles lay hands on the Samaritans and they pray for them. And then immediately the Samaritans are filled with the Holy Spirit. And then Simon, like, oh, that's pretty cool. How'd you do it? That's pretty cool. How'd you do it? How'd that happen? Simon sees this power and he is immediately intrigued. He wants this power for himself. And so he turns to Peter. And he basically says, How much do you want for that? He basically says to Peter, Peter, I'll give you some money if you teach me your trick. It's important to understand that in this time, magicians would pay each other, pay other magicians to learn their tricks. Simon views Peter, now this is interesting. Simon views Simon Peter as a fellow magician, and he wants in on the trick, he wants in on the secret. And he's willing to pay for it. Now this request reveals that Simon doesn't really understand what's going on. He doesn't get it. It reveals that he really isn't in this for the Lord, for God's glory. He's in it for himself. You see, before these Christians showed up, he was Simon the Great. And how did he get that name? He gave himself the name. And so he was Simon the Great and he was performing all these things and everyone was amazed at him and everyone thought he was awesome and everyone was in awe of him. But then these Christians show up and now they just care about them. And no longer is he Simon the Great Magician. So Simon, we learn, just wants in on the trick. He wants some of the power. He wants to be able to put his hands on people and give them the spirit too. He wants to grow his own greatness and prestige. He wants it for himself. He wants to be called great again. And that's the second danger. The danger of using God for self-fulfillment. The danger of using God for self-fulfillment. How many musicians come to church just because they want to play their instruments in the band? How many people have come to churches just because they love singing and they want to sing in the choir? How many special music singers only came for the prestige and the ability to perform their beautiful voices for the church? How many boys and girls come to church because that's the only way they'll get that boy or girl to date them? Took him a minute to look. (laughs) how many of us come to church and participate because we feel like it is the only way that we'll feel like a better person how many of us feel like it's just the right thing to do to go to church and it's what you do and you bring your kids and so you come and you feel better about yourself because you're doing how you were raised you're doing what's good you're doing what's right How many of us come because we think it's good for our kids? How many politicians are members of churches only because they know they need to be in order to win an election? Do we, like Philip, come not pointing to ourselves. Not to make our names great. We are supposed to be coming pointing to the one who is great. And to be sure, following the Lord does bring joy and does bring satisfaction and fulfillment like nothing else could in this world. But we are fulfilled on God's terms and in the right way. Jesus did not come to help you fulfill your dreams. He actually came to change the things you dream of. He didn't come to fulfill whatever it is you want in life. He's not your genie to help you accomplish whatever you dream of. He's come to change your heart so you stop dreaming about depraved things and you dream about good, glorious, godly. See, we don't come to God on our own terms or because God is gonna give us everything we want. We come to God because we know we're broken and that our desires and our wants are broken. And we know that God changes the desires of our hearts so that our true fulfillment and joy can be through him. When you begin to see that Simon was not dying to himself. He wasn't taking up his cross and following Jesus. He was not saying, I must decrease and he must increase. You see that he was in it for himself. You see that he wasn't changing his ways. He wanted his old life. Simon wanted how things used to be and he wanted his, his new life and these new friends and this new power and he wanted them both at the same time. He wanted to take Jesus and combine it with everything else he had going on. But you can't follow Jesus that way. Jesus demands, as our king, our whole lives come under the submission and control and his reign. If you are 99% committed to Jesus, and you give 99% of your life to him, that means you are still 100% in control because ultimately you get get to decide which 99% you give to him and that can change at any moment and so you are still in control. Think about it this way. If your spouse is 99% faithful, you know what we call that? Unfaithful. If your spouse is 99% faithful, they're unfaithful. You, are either, you either give Jesus full control or you haven't given him control at all. Simon wanted his cake and he wanted to eat it too. He wanted to be Simon the great musician who people were amazed at. He wanted to continue his trickery and he wanted Jesus and the power that he brought. This is the third danger. The third danger is the danger of syncretism might be a weird word to you. Syncretism is something missionaries see a lot. When missionaries go to an unreached people group, that is an unreached people group is a group of people who have never heard the gospel. You ask them who Jesus is, they're like, I don't know. Who's that? They They don't know anything about Christianity. And so when missionaries go to unreached people groups who have no idea about who Jesus is, and they preach the gospel to them, and people begin to come to the faith, people begin to get saved, people begin to follow Jesus, What often happens is those people in that culture combine some of their cultural beliefs or their religious background or their superstitions and combine them with Christianity into kind of one new thing. For example, in Haiti, the practice of voodoo is very common. In Haiti, there are witch doctors all over the place. There are superstitions about everything that plague that country. And so sometimes when people in Haiti come to follow Jesus, they don't realize that the voodoo ideas have to go away. And so they become, well, there's witch doctors who think they're Christians, who do voodoo. And they do both and they combine these ideas together. But this is not just an issue for, for Haiti and it's not just an issue for unreached people groups. It is an issue here in America today. Let me give you some examples. Now, let me, let me just say, this, this, I don't know, this may step on some of your toes, I don't know. But know that it steps on your toes out of love. That was my my preface. I love you. I've known Christians who almost daily look up their horoscopes. And if you don't know what a horoscope is, it is about predicting the future or telling you things about yourself or about what may happen or who you are based on the stars and when you were born and their alignment. I have known Christians who get their palms read or go see psychics. I've known Christians who have called themselves Buddhist Christians because they'll follow Jesus, or they also like to do some Buddhist things, and they just do both. I've seen Christians use Ouija boards or believe, try out satanic things to commune with their dead loved ones. Or we have combined sometimes Christianity with materialism. That, yeah, we believe in God, but we also love money and we love the pursuit of possessions. And the idea that whatever we have is ours to do with as we please. And we can see sometimes that, yeah, the church talks about 10%, we give 10%. But that other 90 is mine and it's no one else's business what I do with it. Or what about nationalism? Or some have called it Christian nationalism. Where your Christian identity and your American identity become one and the same. Where you get mad and can't worship if there's not an American flag on the stage. I've seen people walk out of the church raging mad because the eagle on top of the flag was turned sideways and they just couldn't worship unless that eagle was right because God bless America. Where fighting for your political party is the same thing as fighting for God. Or as I heard a pastor say to me who was, I was on staff with at a Southern Baptist church, after a particular election was one that he liked the way it went, he said, "Revival's coming." But like, what? Patriotism is believing my country is special to me. That's a good thing. Nationalism is believing my country is special to God. Not a good thing. He comes for all tribes, tongues and nations. Be merged into a new kingdom. All of these things and more are ways we allow worldly philosophy, worldly wisdom, and ideas to intermingle into the following of Jesus and it destroys the gospel. It doesn't just water down the gospel, it perverts the gospel and it transforms it into something else completely it drains the gospel of its saving power and turns it into something else. See, we must be a people who give ourselves 100% to Jesus and who do not allow any worldly wisdom or philosophy or belief to alter the way we think. We don't look up our horoscopes because we believe God has written our stories and sets our future, not the stars. God created the stars. We don't listen to psychics because we either believe they're hokey or demonic. We don't play with Ouija boards, even for fun, because they're demonic. going to get a demon on me talking about it. We must be the people who do not give in to worldly wisdom or ideas or ideologies and alter the way we think, or else we will become the people who say, I can't believe in a God who does this. I believe in a God like this. I can't believe in a God who would send people to hell. I believe in a God of love. I can't believe in a God who would tell people how they live their life. I believe in a God of love. Basically, I can't believe in a God who would send us a letter and tell us how to, how to do things and how to think and how to believe in who he is. Well, who cares about all that? I just think, I'm, what we do is we become God and we make God in our own image. I, be, I worship a God like this you just worship yourself the danger of syncretism is real and alive well today and we must squash it can't play patty cake with it oh yeah yeah you know oh oh what's her name she looks at her horoscope every day but you know he's just goofy we just let her be oh no. stop stop it pray Stop looking at the stars and pray to the one who created the stars. All right, I'm done. I'll stop. I love you. After Simon the magician tries to pay Peter for the power, that's a lot of peace, pay Peter for the power, to give out the Holy Spirit, Peter rebukes Simon very strongly. I want you to listen to the language Peter uses as he rebukes Simon. May your silver perish with you. You have neither part nor lot, which is language of inheritance. So you're not getting any inheritance in this. May you perish. You're not going to get inheritance. Your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness. Pray that God may forgive you because you are a slave to sin, which is what the bond of iniquity means. When you take all that together, it is pretty clear Peter is calling Simon out, saying, you are not of us. You, you started of us, you, you came with us, but you, you, you departed. You are not of us. You are not a believer. You are not saved. You are not of God. Peter's being really clear about that, that his conversion, quote-unquote, a few verses earlier, was a false conversion remember the story of, 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 of Jesus tells about the, the sower? He throws a bunch of seed out and the seeds of the gospel and some of it sprouts up really quickly, but the sun scorches it and it dies. Some grows up in the rocky soil and it sprouts up and then the rocks or the thorns choke it out. But then some fell in the good soil and it grew and it bare fruit. The point is that there will be some people who look like they're believers. Some people will, be, will, will say they believe and they'll even be baptized and they'll be excited in the church. But as time goes on, they prove that they were never really followers of Jesus, that they were just in it for their own fulfillment. And this is the fourth and final danger, the danger of false conversions. The danger of false conversions. This is a very real danger. Hey, baby. And it is an uncomfortable danger to talk about. There is a reason Jesus gives us that warning in Matthew. You know where he says, not not all of you who say to me, Lord, Lord, will inherit the kingdom of God. And you'll stand before me and say, Lord, did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do mighty works in your name? Did we not do all this stuff for you? And he says, depart from me for I never knew you. It's not about what you do for him. You can't do anything to get him to love you. He loved you. When you were a sinner, he gave his life for you. There's a reason Jesus gives us that warning. This is hard to talk about because like me, most of you have family and you have friends in your life who right now are are not following Jesus if you look at their life. They're not in church. They don't look like a Jesus follower at all. But you remember 10 years ago, they went to youth camp and got saved. Remember 10 years ago, they walked an aisle at that revival service and they got saved. And They don't look like a Christian, but you're holding on to this one moment. But they came to faith and maybe they were baptized. And while I cannot say who is or who isn't truly converted, and while every situation is different, the danger of false conversion is very real. You see, not everyone who believes and is baptized is a real disciple. And that's scary. Real disciples of Jesus are not marked by perfection. Hear me. I'm the first one to say, well, I'm not. I am far from perfect. I am a screw-up. Followers of Jesus are not marked by perfection. Real disciples are not marked by having their life all together. Real disciples are marked. By an ongoing faith in Jesus alone for salvation and an ongoing life of repentance. And our lives are marked by like, yeah, I screwed up again. Jesus, forgive me. Let me do better. Let me try try to fix that. Yes, I I said that thing. I shouldn't have said that thing. Will you forgive me for saying that thing? I'm sorry. Yeah, we're good. Okay, let's talk. It's marked by a life of constant faith and trust in Christ for salvation and repenting and turning from those things that we continually screw up in. But there has been, without a doubt, people who have been immersed under the waters in this baptistry behind me, who in the end will have proved themselves to be false converts. False converts present a real danger, a danger to the person themselves, because when someone is a false convert, but yet we treat them like they're believers, we do them a disservice. Because we should be sharing the gospel with them. We should be trying to get them saved. We should be trying to uh, argue the faith with them. But instead, they live in a false assurance. They live in false confidence. The most difficult thing to do sometimes is convincing people that they are in fact not saved, not a follower of Jesus, even though they're in church every Sunday. One of the reasons Church membership is so important. One of the reasons we make church membership a big deal here is because you have to go through a process whereby me and our elders confirm as best we can that you are in fact a brother or a sister, that you are in fact converted. That when I ask you, what is the gospel? That when I ask you, when were you saved? You don't just say, well, yeah, I was a good person. I say, how did you come to faith? How did you come to Christ? Well, I've just always lived good and believed in God. We go, red flag. That happens to me all the time. And so when you join the church and you've gone through this process and we've said, yes, with the best confidence we have, we think this person is a follower of Jesus. We wanna give them membership into this church because membership says, we think you're going to heaven with us. We think you're solid. We think you are in Christ. Not because you're a good person, but because your faith is in Christ and him alone. So we grant that membership as assurance. As you join, as you're connected to the head, you are now connected to the body. And it's also the reason that church discipline is so important. Because if you refuse repentance and you consistently over a period of time act like an unbeliever, unrepentant, saying what is evil is good and you're gonna do it and you don't care what anyone else says and you do that for so long, In love, after we've come to you again and again and again, saying, brother, repent, stop cheating on your wife. Repent, stop it. If eventually you say, no, I'm gonna do whatever the heck I wanna do. We will remove your membership in love because we are saying, brother, we do not think you are a follower of Jesus. We do not think you are headed to heaven. And so we're gonna change our stance from seeing you as a brother to seeing you as a mission project that we need to share the gospel with. We do it out of love so that we might remove any notion that you have assurance. One of the most unloving things that we can do is give people false assurance. They belong to Christ when they really don't. One of the most unloving things that we can do is not have that conversation with our friend or loved one and and hold on to this hope that they said some prayer 30 years ago. lived like hell since, but they said that prayer 30 years ago. And I've been to church in 30 years, but they said that prayer 30 years ago. And God doesn't have an eraser in his book. He just wrote his name down. I am erased. I know it's hard. I know you don't want to believe it. I know you don't want to think that maybe your friend or your loved one isn't in Christ. And isn't it better to treat them like an unbeliever and be wrong than it is to assume that they're safe, assume that they follow Jesus? And be wrong. As churches grow, they always face these dangers and more. These are just a few of the dangers that we have seen in this text, and we've faced in this church, and we'll continue to face. We, guys, as Fellowship Baptist Church, we've got to be a church that is committed to the truth of the Word of God, unrelenting, unrelenting in the truth. We must not give an inch of the truth for the sake of comfort for the sake of of growth. We can't give an inch of the truth for the sake of growth. We must not give an inch of the truth for the sake of avoiding confrontation. We must be a people of substance, a people committed to the unaltered gospel. We don't water it down. We don't combine it with worldly philosophy. We don't make it about us and our dreams coming true. The world will change. Whatever philosophies it believes in right now, it'll change. We must never change. We must always be the same, committed to this book and the words of God. If you are here this morning and you know deep in your heart that you are a religious person, that you believe in God, that you think you're a good person, and you think you belong to Jesus, but deep down in your heart you know this morning, I'm not. I think I'm a good person and I do religious stuff and and, and I believe in God, but I know deep down I've not submitted myself to Jesus as King and given him my heart and my life. That's you this morning. The best thing that you can do is be honest with yourself. Stop playing the game and trying to feel more comfortable. Be honest with yourself about where you're at so that you can come and be honest with someone else that you might meet a Jesus who has his arms open wide, ready to receive you as his family. You will find a Christ ready to embrace you and change your life. You won't find a watered-down gospel. You won't find a Christ this morning combined with something else. You won't find a Christ who is here to make your dreams come true. You will find a Christ who gave his life while you were a sinner and raised from the dead to bring you joy unending through knowing him and belonging to his family and being a citizen of his kingdom. Come find that Christ this morning if you don't know him. Not the Christ the world talks about. Not an easy believism, easy Jesus. Come find the real Christ, right. Father. This morning, you've given us your Word and you've shown us these dangers. Would you help us, one Father, to be a church of substance, a church that cares about the truth unrelenting, a church that cares about what is right and what is wrong, a church that is is gracious and is compassionate and is loving, but does not waver. A church that is not worried first and foremost about our comfort level. A church that is not worried first and foremost about your dreams being fulfilled. But a church that wants to proclaim a bloody cross and an empty tomb. Let us be a church, Father, that isn't trying to confuse people, let them think that they're safe because they think they're a good person. But God, let us be a church. that that communicates in everything that we do that we are more sinful than we could ever imagine, but yet in Christ, more love than we could ever dare hope. So sinful that Christ had to die, but so loved that he was glad to die. And Father, for those people in this room right now who are either just super far from you or who are just close enough but are still outside the kingdom, who know the language, who know the words to say, who feel like they're a good person and that God loves good people and will take good people to heaven, God, would you convict that person right now and show them they could never be good enough, that their best good works are filthy rags before the perfection of your holiness and that they need the blood of Jesus to wash them clean, that their shoes are not even halfway as white as Ryan's are, their life is not halfway as white as Ryan's shoes are, they are dirty, but that your blood washes as white as snow. God, if there's anyone in this room this morning that that's where they're at, give them the confidence and the courage to come up as we sing and talk to me as I stand up here or talk to one of our guys that's going to be on the side. Come this morning and find a Christ who will change your life. God, give us the courage. Help us to respond. In Christ's name we pray. All people said.